Today on Security Science, tackling a debate as old as cybersecurity itself. Does releasing exploit code do more harm than good? Thank you for joining us. I'm Dan Mellinger, and today we're covering lucky number seven in our prioritization to prediction research series in partnership with the Scientia Institute. We have a full house today, starting with IBM source code used to create Dr. Ben Edwards. Welcome, Chief Data Scientist, founder and partner at Scientia Institute, Jay Jacobs. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. No, no discussion evaluating the merits of releasing exploit code can be considered valid without the SAMRAD of risk-based vulnerability management. Ken is security co-founder and CTO Ed Bellis. What's up, SAMRAT Bellis? Hello, Mr. Mellinger. Thank you for having me as well. I still don't know what a SAMRAT is. I know I've not even bothered to look that up. Yeah, just some background. Um, this is like the third time we've tried to record this podcast for various technical and or Dan issues. Um, so it was less of a surprise, but no one looked up what a SAMRAT is. Um, so I should get on that. I'll try to append that later on. But anyway, last but not least, lending some statistical significance to the discussion today is Kenneth Security Chief Data Scientist, Michael Roitman. What's up, Michael? Hey, hey, I'm uh, still thinking about what a SAMRAT is and whether we actually want a podcast on that. That was an excellent <laughs> I know. I'm gonna. I'm looking it up. That'll be after we do the. Uh, I think we need to do prioritization to prediction outtakes. So stuff that didn't make it in the report. That'll be a lot of fun. And then uh, we got to do Jay teaching Michael how to string a acoustic guitar. Right. That's right. <laughs> yep. Live. This is slowly transitioning into a classical guitar happy hour. <laughs> yeah, that's, we're just gonna security science is gonna turn into acoustic guitar time with uh, Jay Jacobs. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll get us back on task real quick. So as a reminder, you can find relevant links to everything we're discussing today on kennesecurity.com slash blog. I encourage listeners to download and read along as, uh, these sessions in particular typically reference specific charts in the report, um, you know, little call outs, all that fun stuff. So um, there's a lot of data here. It's a lot easier to visualize um, if you're actually following it along and we can actually reference the charts and all that. And if you've been following along with our research in general, prioritization of prediction volume six looked at whether releasing exploit code, so the mechanisms to actually use a vulnerability, um, before a patch is available was a net benefit or detriment to defenders. And while the report found that releasing exploit code early gave attackers a 47-day advantage over the defenders, we stopped short of making a full-on call as to the benefit or detriment, um, as there are some hypotheses yet to test. Um, so, in this edition of Prioritization to Prediction, uh, we tested them. So uh, real quick, as we normally do with these sessions, Jay, would you mind uh, going over some of the data sources uh, that informed this report? Sure. So the there's two major sides to it. There's the defender side and then the attacker side. And on the, on the defender side, and there's like a third side as well, but that's we'll get to that. So the first side of the defender side is basically uh, all of Kenna's data, uh, looking at remediation efforts by companies that are customers of Kenna's. And what we have is over 
often years, uh, depending on the scanner and when they signed up and things like that, we can look back at, you know, the life cycle of specific vulnerabilities. When were they first seen? How often were they discovered, rediscovered and seen? And then when was it closed and or the asset brought offline uh, as sort of the end of life, end of that cycle? And so with that, we've got, oh, I don't have the number off the top of my head, billions. Uh, How many billion? Anybody know offhand? 500 organizations uh, comprising 6 billion vulnerabilities affecting 13 million active assets under management. Yeah. So we put all that into Excel and then we, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we, so, but I mean, there's just billions and billions of vulnerabilities across millions of assets. And uh, we just, we take all the data and we put it in an email and email it around. Um but uh, anyway, that's the defender side. When okay, we get to you can't, see, you can't tell people what we actually do on this podcast. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that's how we share six billion vulnerabilities yeah, via email. It's just a lightweight uh, JSON file. Um, but uh, so that's the defender side, and so that gives us, I think, a really, really great view into what the defenders are actually doing because we see that life cycle. We see, hey, it's been discovered. And we get some notion of the asset, you know, how long the asset has been there, and then how often is it seen? When does it go away? And we can account for that in all of our analysis, which is a really, really, really rich view into the defender side. Um, on the attacker side, we've got a number of different sources looking at exploitation in the wild. And that is, you know, essentially we've got, um, boy, Michael, you might have to jump in here and help me out on some of the uh, exploitation side. Once you start, and I'll fill in anything that I can think of. So there's three ways that we catch exploitation in the wild. The first one is uh, from Alien Vault's uh, deployment of their OSIM. We're looking at when an attack is tracked in an IDS system, but at the same time a vulnerability is open. So maybe nothing happens, but that's one hit for us. Uh, from the malware ransomware side, we've got reversing labs. So anytime they reverse a piece of malware that's been submitted by a customer, so it's already on the box that made it in, and it's tied to a CV, that's a successful exploitation. And then lastly, proof point emerging threats, the combination of those two lets us see when people interact with malicious files and emails. And an interaction with one usually means it's detonated. Again, maybe no, no effect because there's nothing important on that machine, but from a probability perspective, super useful. And then there's one more. Yeah. So I'll hand it over yep. to Jay for that one. And we, we also included Fortinet data, which is um, Fortinet's worldwide device network. Well, I don't even know, tens of thousands, 100,000 devices worldwide. Uh, and those are basically IDS, IPS devices uh, with, you know, trying to identify, track, and block uh, attacks, exploitations in the wild. And those are associated then with the corresponding CVEs and vulnerabilities that they're exploiting. So that gives us, all, all four of these sources give us a rather rich view of the exploitation activity on that side. And so when we look at those two, we've got the defenders from what they're trying to do for remediation, the attackers, what they're doing from an exploitation perspective. And then the third side is basically what is going on with these vulnerabilities? You know, what what is the type of vulnerability? What's, you know, we've got CVSS, the CPE information, the CWE information. We've got, is there evidence of exploit code being published? Uh, and that's one of the focuses that we'll talk about uh, throughout the report. But those are the sources that we're looking at these three sides to it, the attacker, the defender, and then what is the actual vulnerability? Awesome. That sounds like way more data than I can even comprehend. So 
we will move on because I literally cannot even think about that kind of scope. <laughs> um, ultimately, right, last time, um, like I said, we were looking at does releasing exploits before patches are available help or harm defenders? So we left with kind of three hypotheses left to test without jumping to conclusions. So uh, first hypothesis, and Ed, uh, I'll let you chime in after I read each one and let us know the status. We'll, 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 you know, do the too long, didn't read version for these hypotheses and then go over the details as we often do. But hypothesis number one, releasing exploit code early leads to earlier remediation, thus helping defenders. Hypothesis rejected. Ooh, okay. Hypothesis number two. Releasing exploit code early leads to earlier detection, thus helping defenders. Hypothesis rejected. All right. And last but not least, hypothesis number three. Releasing exploit code early facilitates earlier exploitation, thus helping attackers. Were we unable to reject hypothesis? Fa failure to reject. Failure, failure to reject. That's the right term. Thank you, Jay. Yeah. Failure to reject hypothesis. So I don't think that'll, it's probably not earth shattering, but I do believe this is the first time I've ever seen any data that supports this kind of um, finding. So yeah. anyway, uh, let's jump in here. Hey, Dan, it's also worth noting, like at the end of volume six, we looked, like you mentioned that 47 day shift in the attacker uh, timeline, basically, that we were seeing on average things being exploited 47 days faster. When an exploit was released publicly, the code was published before the patch. And that shift, we always saw was that shift. And we had all these sort of possible reasoning why that's occurring. Maybe because the code was out there, we could generate signatures faster. And this was actually a good thing because we can detect them sooner. Maybe you know, it's it's great to have that out there so that we can patch them quicker. You know, maybe there's all of these benefits and the shift is just an artifact of the way we're collecting data. Um, or, you know, the third one, as you mentioned, that maybe this is actually not a good thing. And this is actually helping attackers and that 47 days represents an actual threat. And so these were the three hypotheses that we, we left open at the end of volume six. And so I, I think it's worth noting we've got sort of that continued research into volume seven then to try and answer and test these hypotheses. Well, and you, you've actually brought up this point a couple times. And what I found most interesting is we were looking at it relative to uh, patch availability, mm -hmm. right? Because like mm -hmm. you, you can't really do much as a, right. as a defender before that's available for the most part, right? Um, and uh, I, I think the most shocking piece is like uh, it ended up that not really matter. It's does an exploit exist publicly? That's what matters, right? It doesn't matter what time frame. So we'll dig into that. But um, ultimately, uh, uh, the big takeaway is if an exploit exists publicly, it's a net negative thus far, as far as we could say, which is a pretty concrete finding. Um, so the the timeline of exploitation in this report shifts an average of 98 days. And so like, I, I wouldn't get too caught up over the time frame, like 47 to 98, right? Because it's basically just continues to get wider and wider over time. So it's just a function of how long you're looking at it. It's going to get uh, uh, a bigger number basically there. Um, but ultimately, we ruled out all the other uh, hypotheses. So let's jump in and kind of dig into um, each hypothesis individually so we could talk about the ramifications. So first one is releasing exploit code early leads to earlier remediation, right? So like 
if exploit code is out there, it's available for people to find. Um, they can then go create signatures, reverse engineers. They know it exists. Um, they can go patch stuff faster, right? That was the hypothesis ultimately. Yep. And when, so obviously we've got information about people and companies remediating these vulnerabilities. And so what we can do is we can single out those that should be remediated because an exploit code is out there. Thus, you know, and one of the reasons that people will release this code is so that they can say, hey, defenders can now use this to identify this exploit in their network and fix it. They can, you know, do whatever they need to do to get this out of their network. Yep. And so in theory, what we should see then is faster remediation on those that have exploit code out there before the patch or even out there. Um, and and what we saw, there's there's two ways that we have to look at this too, by the way, just to make this a little bit more complex, if, if you're not following along completely yet, we'll yep. see. But, um, you know, when, when people go to apply a, a patch or something like that, oftentimes it might be bundled, especially, you know, think of like Patch Tuesday comes out and you've got 50 some vulnerabilities in there. Maybe there's five patches and it's patching 50 things. So one patch may cover multiple. And so rather than say, you know, it's good to apply this one to fix this one vulnerability, we said, let's look at the patch as a whole and make that a decision so that if any of the things covered by this patch are have exploit code out there, you want to apply them. Um, and so we looked at it that way. We looked at the patch level, the, the clustered patch, if you will, not the individual CVE, um, which is more reality. I mean, this is how defenders look at it, they they decide whether to apply a patch or not, or, or to delay it or to hurry it up or whatever. And so in theory, if there's exploit code published, and especially if it's before the patch, we would expect to see remediation move to the left, that does mean quicker. And in fact, we don't see that we, we see no evidence that would support that uh, remediation happens quicker when there's an exploit code published before the patch. And actually, there's even some evidence to the contrary that it's actually slower, which makes no sense. Uh, why that would be slower other than it's something else. It does make a little bit of sense when noodling on it, right? So the whole thing of being available before the patch doesn't really matter from a remediation uh, standpoint because we just discussed what can you do to remediate it if there is no patch, right? Mm -hmm. So you're actually, as a defender, your hands are tied and you're sitting on your hands waiting for that patch to be released before you can even remediate, right? So mm -hmm. in that sense, and I think in, in the report, we actually looked at uh, kind of the activity versus the CVE publication date. So, you know, we see a slight shift to the right, meaning it's a little bit slower for remediation, but that doesn't, it doesn't surprise me given the fact that there was no patch available for the defenders when this first uh, came out at least. Yeah, and we're looking at figure four um, on page seven of the report if you're following along. And basically, they plotted the remediation vol velocity. So the speed and progress, right, of uh, uh, how quickly people are remediating. And they have two lines and they functionally, <laughs> for all practical uh, purposes, they line up on top of each other. Um, yep. So there's no spike of, oh, they remediated a ton of this stuff early, right, uh, ahead of the CVE publication date. Um, it matched almost exactly so. And so if you think about this, like the, the like we talked about, the reason that people would release exploit code is they say it helps the defender. And the primary way that we would see benefit to the defender is if remediation occurred quicker. Yep. Right. And that's just not showing up here. 
in fact, we you guys come paired uh, in table one um, on the next page there. Yeah. Um, if an exploit code is published first or the patch is first, what's the area under the curve, right? Um, yeah. What's the mean time to remediate and what's the vulnerability half-life? Yeah. And um, they are, these numbers are functionally, again, on top of each other. Um, yeah, I mean, there's actually evidence to the contrary that when there is an exploit published first, it's actually a little bit slower to be remediated. And maybe that's because the exploit is being published because it's taking longer to get the patch out there. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that was one one theory, but um, yeah, I mean, the evidence here says that the remediation is not occurring any faster when there's an exploit published first. So, question that I think everybody's asking in their mind: Do you think it matters who's publishing the exploit? Good question. Um, I think it might matter more where uh, and what is the reach of that platform. So I think if somebody puts it on their blog that has two visitors or something, that's going to be a lot different than coding something and getting it pushed into Metasploit, which is then pushed into you know possibly hundreds of thousands or millions of platforms ready and weaponized. I think that those are going to be two totally different threat scenarios. So yeah, I think it doesn't matter who and or where. Oh, I would say it matters to the attacker, but Michael, is your question, does it, does it matter to the attacker or to the defender? Well, it certainly matters to the attacker, but I also want to think about it from the defender perspective. If you're publishing a Metasploit, you might have processes already in place that cause you know, some alert or a trigger, but maybe you're publishing just on GitHub. Right. No, but you have to crawl that to figure it out. Or you have to wait for it to pop up in a blog somewhere, somebody to tell you, and that could take weeks. All true. Although, I mean, it goes back to the beginning too, right? Which is once I get alerted on it and I found out there is an exploit on it, if there is no patch, what do you want me to do? Compensating controls because you have that good a security handle on your massive infrastructure slash the political will to tell all of your admins to go block this port that may also be used by some other service. You've been hanging out with the security one percenters again, Dan. <laughs> Political <laughs> will. That's one thing yeah. I never thought we'd say on this podcast. I mean, <laughs> I, let's be real. I mean, making infrastructure-wide changes, it, it takes some it takes some uh some force, force within the organization to be able to achieve something like that. So I mean, ultimately, hypothesis number one. What 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 did we ultimately say? And he rejected it, Dan. Hypotheses rejected. Hypothesis rejected. Okay, <laughs> so it doesn't help defenders in this way. Okay. Hypothesis two. Releasing exploit code early leads to earlier detection of exploitation in the wild, thus helping defenders. So ultimately, we don't know what we don't know. Maybe this has been, uh, this vulnerability has existed. Um, uh, we just didn't know what to look for, right? It's being exploited this whole time. It's been exploited for six months. The dark webs had this for freaking a year and a half. They've been using this like crazy. You just don't know about it yet because you haven't been hit. So publishing exploit code early, now we know, now we can create some signatures, now we can go scan for this, and now we can see that it does indeed exist. That is the, the hypothesis, right? Right. And so we looked at this in two different ways. The first thought is if it's already being exploited, and releasing exploit code is going to help us write a signature to detect it already being exploited. In theory, when that signature gets deployed, we should be able to see exploitation activity right away. 
And so what we found is that roughly about 17% of, of CVEs that have signatures deployed, that they were discovered on day zero. That is like the day that we publish a signature, about 17% were being exploited that day, anywhere, anywhere mm -hmm. at all. And so one or more places, and that's one out of every six. And so right there, we know it's a minority, one out of every six are being exploited probably before the signature is deployed. But when we look at the spread, that is, you know, we don't want to look everywhere. We want to know, um, basically, um, out of all of those that were were discovered as being exploited somewhere, we want to know what proportion are seen on the first day. In other words, like if there's a thousand exploitation attempts, how many occurred on that first day? And what we found is less than 0.2%, that is roughly one out of 500 occur on that first day. Um, and it goes up slowly from there. It, you know, even over the first two years, we get to about 70% of the exploitation activity. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. I'm just to think there, there is this knee jerk reaction to think, oh, it's exploited somewhere. You know, we now like the barn doors open all the, everything's running out. Like we got to go, we're all in trouble, right? Let's all yeah. react. But what we're seeing is that, no, I mean, we're not seeing, widespread attacks, like as soon as one person sees it, not many other people are going to see it, honestly. Um, and this is something we talked about in volume six as well. And so to use that sort of mentality of like, oh, I'm sure it's, you know, like someone somewhere saw it, therefore, everybody needs to scramble, it's just not the case. Um, and that's what that first figure is showing. And then that's figure five in the report. Looking at figure six, we also wanted to look at, let's talk about like when these signatures actually get deployed relative to CVE publish. So if those that have an exploit published before the patch, if those are in fact getting signatures out there quicker, we would see that relative to the CVE publish and actually we see the opposite again. We see that generally those that have uh, an exploit published after the patch, it looks more like a regular process where you see a very strong peak around the CVE published time as if they're scheduled, there's, you know, coordinated disclosure going on, there's times for defenders to react, as opposed to those exploit published before the patch, there's much less of a peak, it's more spread out, and it's more spread out behind the curve of exploit published after the patch, which is counter essentially to what this hypothesis was saying. And so again, with the evidence that we have here, we are failure, we're failing to see evidence that in fact, this is a good thing for defenders. We're actually seeing sort of the opposite that we're, it's more chaotic. We're not getting the signature out there any faster. If it's released, we're not detecting them any sooner, that sort of thing. Yeah, and it was interesting to see the kind of the slow rise of those exploitations over time, right? There was no, you would think that even you know, to some of the things that we commonly believe, even after exploit published and everybody's seen it, oh my God, you know, it's good to, it's going to be all over the place. It's going to be spray and pray. And it's just kind of this slow, steady climb month after month, year after year that we kind of see overall for volume. Yeah. And I found figure six most interesting just because one, it, it, it implies that coordinated disclosure, I mean, for all intents and purposes, typically works, right? Mm -hmm. Which um, we've kind of identified in volume six as well, right? You see uh, a very rigorously aligned schedule of, you know, 
public uh, CVE is revealed to the world, patches are made available within two days, right? And people start patching immediately, right? And then, and you know, that the, whether or not the exploit is published before or after started to shift, you know, who had the advantage in terms of overall exploitations versus overall uh, patches, right? Figure six is interesting because it reinforces that and it shows how exploitation or exploits being a, uh, made available earlier actually seems to catch the software vendors off guard, right? It takes them much longer to roll out and scan, create signatures and understand what's out there. So if we had an exploit escrow, you say that the exploit exists, but you don't publish it and you only publish it when a patch is available. Do we think that fixes all of it or just some of it? Some of it. Some of it. Yeah. So what's left on the table? So the reason why I say some of it is because you said when patch is available and we've already seen how long, you know, yes, people will start patching right away, but when do they get to 100%? Almost never. Right. Uh, when do they get to half-life? It takes a lot longer than that, right? So it takes time yeah. to roll out patches to all of these systems. So if you're going to publish an exploit as soon as a patch is available, you're, you're putting the defender behind the eight ball still. Yeah, half-life is right. roughly what almost a hundred days, regardless. So, so Dan is uh, Dan's catching where I'm going with this. So, the worst part about all of these charts is that you can't think about the chart; you have to think about the area under the curve, right? You right. have to look at how they're changing over time. So, that half-life metric is actually the number. So, we said no, but exploit published at patch available plus 98 days, right? Is that it? Is that the number for the Half-Life? <laughs> yeah, about that. I mean, depending on the vendor and the, the patching infrastructure, but yeah. As so, we'll get into highly vendor dependent. So the like, vendor dependence is super important. And I think the number changes, but it's it's essentially like a, there's time of release plus T, and that T varies depending on what the software is. And there's a correct number here. There's a solution to this, make defenders and attackers even. Even is fine, but why make them even? My, I guess my question would be is, have we, do we have any evidence that publishing an exploit publicly does anything good for the defender ever? Hypothesis presented by Ed Bellis. Does <laughs> publishing the exploit do anything good Ladies and gentlemen, volume eights. I, th I think it does. Um, but I mean, the challenge is that I think the people who can use an exploit first the, for, for good are probably not your average person um, and they're going or to organization or organization. Right. But I, I do think that they, there are many, many people that find it very helpful to have those out there that they can use in their network to really discover these things and bring them out in the open. But I think that that is an extreme minority when talking about the thousands of organizations, you know, tens of, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of organizations on the internet, millions. I don't even know. There's so many organizations that the, people that can leverage and do really, really good stuff and probably way more amazing than the average company that they're going to benefit. But I think that that is such an extreme minority and that's what we're seeing in the data. Yeah. Well, there's the case that researchers are going to bring up of what if software vendor Y doesn't believe me, right? And that's a legitimate issue. So like that's a use case for having the exploit code available. But based off of all of our research thus far, it's an ultimate net detriment if it's publicly available, right? So like 
it could call for a shift in the way that we disclose this stuff, right? Like if a vendor doesn't listen, then this may be, you know, your atomic option, right? To be like, hey, world, they're not listening to me. Here's my email thread. I tried to call them. I pinged this guy in our security Slack who I know knows the CIO of, you know, this company. You know, I did everything humanly possible to get a hold of this company and have them develop a patch and they won't do it. So now at this point, it just makes sense for me to, you know, put this out there. But who knows, right? Uh, ultimately, that's where you bring in Michael's uh, escrow service that he just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Nobody steal that idea. I like it a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's his next his next startup. Um, <laughs> yeah. Exploits Unlimited. Um, I think but, we're getting to the heart of it, which is today, there's probably no benefit from publishing an exploit other than getting a vendor to move when they aren't. But, you know, the fact that exploits have been published for the past 25 years actually allows folks like us to study them and come up with methods for prioritizing vulnerabilities or predicting when exploits will come out. If that data was never published in the 90s or the early 2000s, none of this would be a science. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we've reached a critical point where we now know enough about the vulnerability lifecycle where each incremental exploit publication is actually a net detriment, but it didn't always used to be that way. Yeah, but ultimately I think it comes down to do we need to know the details, the detailed mechanisms and mass to go exploit a company who has this software? Right. And like, I think today, like in the, in the forms of research, research can still happen behind closed doors. Right. And like over time periods and the longer you give a, a horizon, right. A, a gap, the more people will be patched and hopefully safe. Right. So like, yeah, you, you do your research behind closed doors. You release that research two years down the line after they've already patched it. It's long gone. Then companies, hopefully if you're using that software are running the latest stuff, right? Not 120 days after the fact, two years after the fact. Yeah. And, and I think there's a huge difference between putting something out on GitHub and putting it on Twitter and stuff like that versus going to an ISAC or an ISL or something and, you know, some, some other group that you're part of that has some sort of barrier to entry where you can discuss it and possibly publish an exploit through that and get peer feedback and, you know, help companies that want that information as opposed to give it to everybody, including the attacker, you know. Yep. Um, which I think is, might be a good segue into hypothesis number three. Yeah. Hypothesis number three. Releasing exploit code early facilitates earlier exploitation, thus helping attackers. So this is the big one. Um, Ed, you already gave it away. What, how, do, how do we structure we, this? We failed answer? to reject the hypothesis. Failed to reject. Can neither ag- oh, confirm no. nor deny the Glomar yeah, defense. Yeah, you got to scrap that one. Neither yeah. confirm <laughs> nor deny. I mean, the the other defense that works here is it's only metadata. And the metadata of exploits seem to be way more valuable to defenders than the actual exploits themselves. Yes. Knowing that an exploit, Jay looks confused. Knowing that an exploit exists is important. Yes. The exploit being released is completely irrelevant and actually detrimental. Yes, released publicly, right? I, I do believe that coordinated disclosure is a great thing. I do believe sharing exploits with... IES, IPS vendors with scanners and all of these is a good thing, yeah. right? It helps yeah. uh, them to identify and, and hopefully block attacks as well. Right. I, I totally agree. And I mean, there's there are a lot of good things to be done with those exploits. Um, but unfortunately, 
as we looked at this hypothesis number three, what we found is that when things are made publicly available, we found a couple of things. So first, when we looked at the number of organizations affected, that is, the number of organizations across all of our sensors that were reporting exploitation activity, we found, what is it, about six times the number of organizations reported exploitation activity when there was exploit code published. In other words, when that vulnerability had you know, either Metasploit or XYDB or GitHub or something, when something was out there telling people how to exploit it, six times the number of companies reported activity. And then when we took that one step further and looked at overall exploitation activity, it just exploded. Um, it was like 15 times more exploitation activity for those with exploit code published than without. And so the hypothesis was about releasing exploit code early. We dropped early. And we just looked at if we publish exploit code ever, what is the effect? And this looks terrible. Yeah. And now granted, we're looking at correlation. So it might be that maybe people are publishing exploit code for things that are going to be exploited a lot already. So there could be that, right? We can't say this is causation. Uh, but I mean, like this is pretty incriminating. Yeah. Um, and well, and functionally, does that matter, right? You know, I'll ground this out. So we're on kind of figure what, seven and eight of the report, mm -hmm. right? But ultimately, if exploit code exists publicly, so does it exist and do people know about it broadly, right? That increases. So 15 times the overall exploitation activity yep. across six times as many organizations. Yep. That's huge. Yep. I mean... Yeah, I'm just letting that sink in a little bit. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Like I've read this report like I don't even know how many times now and it's still right. I mean <laughs> and I mean the other the other feedback that we got is that there was maybe something about the type of vulnerability. Maybe you know the fact if it's SQL injection or something like that, maybe we're not going to be able to see that exploitation and all these complicated things. And so one of the things we did is we just looked at vulnerabilities that were flagged as remote code execution as RCEs. And we just looked at that so that we're looking at the same type of vulnerability across all of these things and just trying to isolate all of the variables to just is there exploit code or not. And when we just isolated it to RCEs, we saw a 30 times increase. So those RCEs that had exploit code published, we saw 30 times the amount of exploitation activity versus the RCEs without exploit code published. So that side hypothesis also rejected. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Failed to reject. Yeah, whatever the hypothesis is. Yeah. Failed to <laughs> confirm or deny while rejected. <laughs> the Glomar hypothesis. So this, I mean, you know, we. this is, I really like this topic because this debate has been going on, I think, forever uh, since the invention of releasing exploit code, uh, you know, about coordinated disclosure, responsible disclosure, uh, full disclosure, you know, all of these sort of thoughts and opinions about what is the best way to do it. And it's been a very, very passionate argument. Uh, and for the most part, we haven't seen a lot of data or research being brought to bear in this discussion. And I think at the very least, 
this is a first and a very, very large step in this discussion. And so obviously, if people are for full disclosure, and they want to get everything out there, including the exploit, there's going to be ways to sort of pick this apart. But I think this needs to be part of the discussion. We've got data that shows that there are some very net detrimental effects of releasing exploit code, especially releasing it early before the patch. Uh, and so it's just something I think has to be factored into the discussion. Yeah, yeah, no, I 100% agree on that. And I mean, we're starting to see, I mean, it's this has been a really hotly contested debate for like eternity, right? Um, yeah. uh, but we're actually starting to see things shift a little bit. So I think one thing, um, and we'll get into the vendor side, um, following this piece, right, we start digging into what will invariably be some crazy cool um, insights for volume eight, but we start doing some background work on breaking down um, specific vendors again, because that's always an interesting way to look at this. And it appears, you know, vendors in large are taking this seriously, right? They're they're pushing patches, they're trying for the most part to uh, engage in, you know, <laughs> yeah. many are. coordinated discussion, stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's interesting just the sheer variety. Um, yes. And I mean, if you think about it, like, it's super easy to, to like blame the organization of like, you know, I'm sure the organization is going to apply patches evenly. And when they get that patch, they'll go out. But that is absolutely not the case. I think we've got very, very strong evidence that actions by the vendor are going to affect the remediation rate in their products. Absolutely. Right. Well, and I mean, even what just real quick, uh, what Google Project Zero, right? They just changed their policy to give what was it a 30 day buffer after yeah. patch availability, right? And so whether they read volume six and came up with 47 days, I uh, will make it a month, make it easy for people to understand, or they found that in their own data set, right, that they were giving uh, attackers an unfair advantage by releasing stuff early, right, making mm -hmm. stuff available early um, without patch, or, you know, same day, they seem to be moving in the right direction, I think, you know, um, yeah. Now, just so we're not confusing two debates, right? Because we talk yeah. about full disclosure a lot. It's <laughs> there is a different debate around disclosure of exploit code, which is what we're talking about here, and disclosure of vulnerability, which is not what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I tend to conflate the two, as I think uh, researchers typically well. One layman like myself probably do in general, <laughs> but uh, you know researchers too. A, an interesting CVE pops up. I think people will use that as a target for good and bad research, right? Um, it's very much. Uh, I, I think it's been pretty clear on some of this stuff too that you know a CVE comes out, a new vulnerability comes out, then a whole bunch of researchers go to town trying to reverse out that patch or whatever and figure out the vulnerability to figure out an exploit. So. That sort of thing goes on, but, you know, we didn't at all address vulnerability disclosure in either of these reports. Right. I like this thread because we saw this, the patch rates being different, way back when. We saw this, what, P2P for volume four or five when we did the benchmarking uh, work? Three. Yeah, yeah volume three. Yeah. Um, and I remember us making hypotheses about it especially when we were giving like talks or presentations about it, we would be like, well, look, Chrome, you just restart the browser. Microsoft makes it super easy. And now we get to see it not just from the Defender perspective, but also from how a variable influences Defender behavior under conditions of different vendors. And I think that's where the rubber really hits the road. Yeah. And we started going down that path too about 
the vendors have the ability to affect the remediation rates. You know, like you mentioned, Chrome obviously made a very conscious decision to make remediation of Chrome a priority where all you have to do is restart it and you get a patch and there's no, I don't even know if you can disable that, you know? And so as a result, I mean, we see Google as a vendor right up among the top. They are number one in their remediation, 25%. 25% of them are actually remediated before the CVE is published. I think that's CVE publish, uh, day zero. Um, so we're seeing like just an enormous jump from Google products. And that that's also Google. And of course, we get some Android stuff in there too. Um, I don't know anything about patching an Android, but judging from this, I think that there's probably some proactive things there as well. Um, second place was Microsoft. And then surprisingly, third was a, a Linux platform, OpenSUSE. And then I think also a surprise was F5 and number four. Um, generally speaking, they were they were they were doing really good from a vendor perspective on pushing updates, and obviously F five has been in some headlines recently, um, some concerns about that. But the the remediation is looks to be fantastic in this data. Um, and then there's other things too that vendors on the other side we can obviously th see things that are quite poor, and I think you know we could easily spend an hour talking about SAP, right, Ed? <laughs> no, we could not. Anyway. <laughs> Well, and the other question uh, around SAP is, you know, how many people are actually looking for their vulnerabilities in SAP? Do they scan SAP? Is is it publicly exposed? All of these different things. But yeah, no, no, nobody's patching SAP. Nobody's probably even scanning SAP for that matter. Yeah, years to get to 20, 25%. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's pretty terrible. Even going back to volume five, we, you know, there's a lot of evidence that what vendors do to make things easier for their customers to apply patches and to actually update their systems makes a massive difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what Google, you mentioned it earlier, right? Their 25% closed rate was before CVEs were published, basically, right? So like you, you shut down and reopen Chrome, you're plugging more than 25% of all the open vuln or all the vulns on Chrome browser, right? Something like that. It'd um, probably be a lot more if you could convince people to restart Chrome. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> How many tabs do I have open yeah. right now? Yeah, I don't <laughs> want to think about it. Um, but we also did another thing uh, as we turned to figure 11, where we looked at essentially two variables trying to compare where the vendors sit. And we looked at the percent of CVEs that are being exploited in the wild. So, you know, maybe 10% of the CVEs are actually being exploited versus how many of those CVEs had exploit code. In other words, the research community is very apt to focus on them. Um, and so what we saw, I think, was pretty interesting, the spread of these. And typically what we find is things like Microsoft are always in the upper right. I mean, the poor, poor Microsoft, right? But what's interesting is like in the far bottom right, which is high number of CVEs being exploited in the wild and a low number of published exploit code was Adobe, which I found really interesting. Like there's a lot of exploitation activity, uh, but not a lot of published exploit code. There was like 3% of them had exploit code, but like almost 30% were being exploited in the wild. Are you uniquing based on CVE or exploitation events? Yep, CVE. Okay. So like 30% of their published CVEs were had exploitation activity in the wild. Got it. Which is pretty impressive. And then on the, on the flip side was Apple. 
where it was not being exploited very much in the wild, but there were a lot of exploit code being published for them. So it was like, I don't know, one, 2%, maybe two, 3% of the CV has been exploited in the wild versus about 13% having exploit code. Um, so it's that opposite from Adobe. And then you get Drupal, which is a little bit of an outlier, <laughs> which is sort of both a lot of exploit code, a <laughs> lot of exploit to activity, um, which anybody who's been around will be like, yep. Yeah, content um, management and, systems, anything out there yeah. on the internet. Yeah. So, I mean, along with that, like the, the really crazy ones are like Drupal, WordPress, ISC, which is bind, you know, which is it's it's always, always DNS. DNS. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, OpenSSL, you know, things like that, things that are really out there, Nginx. Um, yep. So so you, you saw a little bit of correlation, but very, very loose, right? Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. So it's kind of very much vendor software type, but very dependent on how it's used or how broadly it's used and how yeah. their disclosure processes work, all that fun stuff. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and then we go into, what is this, figure 12. Which is so, a beautiful chart. It's beautiful. There's so many colors. <laughs> so uh, lovely. Yeah. Um, I mean, you guys plotted essentially all the various vendors, software vendors. Not, not all of them. It is. There's a lot of them. I think there's like 3,000 unique vendors in the CPE or something, 2,000. You stopped at 2,900. <laughs> no, I think there's, I don't know, like 50 or something or 60 on 100. I don't know. But yeah, um, I would take this on a T-shirt. <laughs> I bet if you washed it once, like half of these would peel off or something. But um, so what this what figure 12 looks at is how many vulnerable assets, because remember, we looked at uh, millions and millions of assets uh, across all of the, the kind of customers. And so we know how many vulnerable assets were out there. And then we also looked at the volume of exploitation activity. And so you can see in the upper right, of course, Microsoft, they have way more assets than anything else. And there's a lot of exploitation activity for them. And so the thinking is that when there's a lot of assets, we're probably going to see a lot more exploitation activity, but we don't quite see that. It spreads out pretty, pretty widely uh, in both directions. And so, you know, we talked about things like um, the, the CMS systems and those are more towards the top. There's more exploitation activity than what we see in the corporate environments that we have scanning data for. Mm -hmm. um, and so you see things like uh, Dasani Networks or vBulletin, you know, things like, I don't know how many companies are actually running vBulletin. It seems more like something people do for fun on the weekends and have, you know, hosting it somewhere versus their company. Fun. Um, fun. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> relatively speaking. Uh, and so we see a lot more exploitation activity than we do assets. But then on the flip side, like Image Magic or McAfee and Semantic are on the other side where there's a lot of vulnerable assets out there, but we're just not seeing that exploitation activity across the internet. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. It's almost like an unmagic quadrant. <laughs> yeah. right? So uh, yeah. if you're in the upper right quadrant, you, it means one, a lot of people have your software running it, right? A lot of organizations. So that's probably a good thing, right? You're probably doing pretty good as a company. Also means you're more attacked, right? And if you go <laughs> bottom, what, le bottom left unmagic quadrant, less adopted. So you're not, uh, not as popular in yeah. the enterprise, but you're also not getting attacked too much. And then, you know, the other quadrants, uh, permutations on that. Yeah. Bottom left is like, who's that? 
you know, like the vendors listed there. Um, I, I don't want to name them because in, in case they're listening, we might insult <laughs> them or something. But uh, It's not um, nice. Yeah, so I mean, there's just a lot of companies in the lower left that, or, or open source projects, not necessarily companies, just software packages, software vendors. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, and ultimately, uh, what, you don't want to be in the upper left, right? Because that means you don't have a ton of software across the enterprise and people are attacking it like yeah. crazy. Yeah. So you don't even get the benefit of making money off of it. So. Right. Uh, is that yeah. the unmagical quad portion of the yeah, quadrant? Yeah, that is the least magic yeah. of the all the four the quadrants here. Um, yeah. But yeah, follow along. Uh, it's a pretty interesting chart. And, it, you know, I, I don't think it's super surprising for anyone who, you know, works in IT at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it can help lay out, you know, the, the volume of exploitation activity for software that you likely have running in your environment. So it could be a nice little chart to, uh, you know, kind of orient around, uh, you know, w what's being uh, actively exploited externally and what you own, right? Yeah, I think it would be cool to look at this in two years and see just the 10 that have moved the most. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or just next year. In six yeah. months. Let's see what happens. You signed up for it. I didn't sign yeah. you up. Yeah, totally. <laughs> It'd Jay's be super interesting. Who wouldn't want to see that? The unmagic quadrant over time. Yeah. Yeah, just shift them. So two quadrants. Yeah. I uh. see animated <laughs> graphics in our future. This is going to be oh. exciting. Nice. Oh, yeah. 3D pie charts? No, 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 no. Just over time. This, this I heard 3D pie doing. charts. I heard Jay commit to a 3D animated pie chart. Animated 3D report. pie chart is what I no, I'm thinking like <laughs> TED Talk from Hans Rosling kind of thing where I'm all excited, <laughs> motioning at a screen that's moving. That's that's what I envision. No 3D pie charts. No, okay. <laughs> um, and then moving on, I mean, we have a this is a pretty cool chart overall. Um, so we go to figure 13. Um, and it's just interesting because you take uh, 24 different software vendors and you plot the remediation activity versus exploitation activity. Yeah, and this is super interesting. So, I mean, like, and we also put some faint lines uh, on what the average is across all vendors. So you can see like some vendors might be a little faster, a little slower. Some might be extremely slower. Uh, you know, like SAP comes to mind here again, you know, I mean, why I know do you, this is why do you keep picking company. on SAP? Jay? But no, I mean, seriously, <laughs> you know, we talk about SAP and how slow they are to remediate. Uh, and in fact, we see that like the remediation line, it's supposed to jump up almost immediately, you know, but it's almost flat that there's almost no remediation activity, but we also see almost no exploitation activity. You know, maybe that's not a bad decision to delay fixing SAP until you get a few years worth of patches to apply and then you take it down for a weekend. You know, I mean, that might make sense. Um, <laughs> Subtitle that chart is nobody cares. <laughs> for, for SAP. Um, yeah, but, you know, I mean, we also th see things like, uh, where's Oracle on here? It's got to be on here. There we go. So Oracle exploitation rate is slightly above average. The red line is slightly above the industry average. And then you take a look at the remediation rate and it is significantly slower. And so mainly we're talking like, I think Java is probably driving that one that we're seeing remediation on Java being very slow to be adopted. Um, and so it's pretty clear though, that Oracle has more attackers than average and less remediation rate, which is a, a problem. 
I, I agree. I would concur. That's not only Java. I, I can think of many other products, including right. imagine upgrading your Oracle RDBMS or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I have never imagined that. <laughs> sounds terrifying. <laughs> Nor do I ever want to. Yeah. Let's yeah. go down uh, with the Drupal. That we, looks like a, like a doomsday scenario there. Which one going after the... Drupal. Oh. Oh, let me What's that? It's at the top right below Apple. They're in alphabetical oh, order, yeah. Jay. Oh, that, wow. Yeah. That is... Uh, <laughs> thanks, Ed. Um, it, what we're looking at is Drupal, where the remediation rate drops below the exploitation activity, which is way above average. And so... I don't think anybody would be surprised that Drupal has attacked this much and is that vulnerable. Uh, anybody who's dealt in its incident response, because you know, sees Drupal and has an immediate visceral reaction. WordPress has a very similar chart. Yep. Yep. Yeah. One, well, yeah. uh, it's interesting because you also have uh, basically a numeric value, and so if it's in red. It's bad. If it's in blue, probably good. And you could start to judge based off of the vendor. So we can get super judgy about SAP being a negative 0 0.02. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's basically looking at the area under the curve and the difference between the two. So if the blue remediation rate is very far above it, like where's Microsoft? Their score is 0.45. Um, so 45% of the chart is blue above red. Uh, as opposed to something like uh, Drupal, which is negative 0.11, where the attacker curve is, has 11% gain over the defender curve, uh, which is a terrible thing. I don't think you'd want to be even with that. I think you'd want to be more towards Microsoft on the double-digit positive remediation rate. Absolutely. But I do want to bring up one thing about Drupal and WordPress. It looks like this is a judgment call on vendor likelihood to be exploited versus how well the vendor is orchestrating remediation. But it's not because WordPress and Drupal are actually surprisingly easy to update for the most part. But it's the sophistication of the user as well that factors into it. So with Microsoft and Symantec, for example, all the confluence of all the things is there. The vendors are doing a great job, users are doing a great job, and the attackers are struggling because the vendors are doing a great job. But that's not always the case. Like Drupal Pretty easy to update. People just don't. Well, and I know like WordPress, for example, I mean, one of the challenges is that it's typically internet facing, right? Like you're using this to host your blog, you're using it to host your website. Um, and then on top of that, people build on WordPress. So like, even if there is an update to address a patch, you may have a hundred different modules installed and you're waiting for all of those to green light that they're okay, right? Because if you update to new version and it's not compatible, you end up breaking uh, your CMS, you end up breaking some, you know, uh, your e-tailer, right? Your sales pipeline on your website, stuff like that, right? So yeah, it's definitely, uh, there's definitely some very individualized um uh, characteristics that need to be accounted for when you're looking at this stuff for sure. And then, you know, I want to jump real quick to the CVSS because I mean, honestly, this is almost like a nothing chart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would have just skipped is, it. But. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's just funny because, you know, everyone talks about CVSS when you talk about VM programs and kind of ratings, right? Um, because it's a score, it's easy to digest, but CVSS will tell you don't use us as a risk score, right? Like right. It's, that's not what we're intended for. Um, 
and you guys plotted the remediation activity versus the exploitation activity similar, but for the various CVSS score breakdowns, right? Right. And we see fluctuations. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just sort of fluctuating. There's some variance going on there. And uh, like you said, it's sort of a nothing chart. There's no clear story of like, oh, look, the remediation rate for 10 is way faster than nine and eight and seven. And that's just not the case. They're just sort of moving around like they're, you know, the, the wandering drunk. Is the horse dead or should we beat it in the next report as well? No, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't have much more to talk about CVSS. I mean, <laughs> once you call it a wandering drunk, all bets are. I mean, you're pretty much done at this point, right? Yeah, I think. I think that horse that might become a Jayism. There's a couple throughout the years. I hope not. <laughs> the scoring system is a wandering drunk. Well, the one thing I, I will say is, it looks like either CVSS. Eight is basically as average as it gets for CVSS. Oh, good I mean, call. The yeah. blue line is almost right on the average, and the red line just drifts slightly. And do you yeah. know what the average CVSS score is across all vulnerabilities? Seven point something. Yep, 7.8. There you hmm. go. I'm learning things. Wow, that's <laughs> crazy. Yep. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, again, nothing chart. Uh, don't use CVSS. I mean, I, I don't think we have to tell people now, but if you're using that to like basically prioritize, like just just don't. So can I can I talk about a vision that I've had for CVSS in the future? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the really cool things that CVSS is doing is that they structure a set of questions and essentially instruct people how to answer them with a lot of detail. And so what we get from NVD is that we get these questions essentially being published with their answers being assigned. And so we're getting structured answers to these questions. Um, and the scoring, I think, maybe in the future, we might find that the scoring becomes less important as other scoring systems maybe stand up with a little bit more rigor behind them. But I mean, like the what CVSS is doing, they've got committees working on what are these important questions that we want to ask and how do we structure them? How do we document them? And I think that is awesome. I think that that should actually be the focus and sort of forget about the scoring. We'll take care of the scoring with, you know, other scientific uh, statistical approaches. So but that's that's one cool thing I see of CVSS. And so in the future, I'd just like to see more focus on the questions and gathering information about these vulnerabilities that is not going to come out from just data alone. Yeah. Well, I, and just real quick, I know like it comes off cause I, I mean, we kind of do, but we're not beating up on CVSS for what it's intended to do. Right. The problem with CVSS is it was turned into by people, something that was never intended to function as, and that's not fair. Um, but you know, we've taken such a strong stance on it because people need to stop doing that. Ultimately, <laughs> uh, it's not CVSS fault. Again, they put it on the website um, when you're looking at it ultimately. But I mean, there were no really good measures. So I think, you know, it kind of it's a fault of them doing a really good job and being this only, you know, really universally accepted standard. That was a numerical based system that people could leverage. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of a victim of its own popularity and rigor, honestly. So just want to call that out because, you know, we, we've beaten that horse continually wandering, wandering drunk. drunk. Exactly. <laughs> wandering drunk horse. That's uh, uh, that's Jay's username now. 
that's going to be his code name uh, when we're doing the research reports in the future. Yeah. Well, Eric, let's round out. So the last chart, figure 15. So it's relative measure of attacker defender advantage amongst the major software vendors. So this is kind of a different quadrant because it's not really split by quadrants. It's split by averages, right? Yeah. And so the figure 13, we had the red and the blue line sort of tracking to each other. And then we essentially just transferred that into a different way of visualizing it. And we created the size of the point for the number of assets that that uh, vendor has uh, that we've scanned for. And what we saw is, you know, we've got the crosshairs, the quadrants essentially defined as an average for the rate of remediation and the rate of exploitation. So like Google and Microsoft are both above average for the rate of remediation. Uh, they're doing better than average on the remediation, but they're doing also a little bit below average on the rate of exploitation, uh, which is kind of interesting. But things in the upper right that are really being remediated well, and they're being exploited a lot, things like SonicWall, um, McAfee, Pulse Secure, F5 is in that quadrant. Um, so you see these things that are above average remediated, so they've got really good remediation plans, but they're also being exploited a lot uh, relative to the average, right? And the size of the bubble represents... Number, number of assets. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, and it's just another chart to sort of look at and pick out vendors. And so, if say you're, uh, you know, in charge of network devices or something, and so you know you're looking at Palo Alto, Cisco, and F5, and some of these other devices that you have to keep an eye on, it's just interesting to see where they fall and their remediation and exploitation. So it might give you an indication on what you might want to just prioritize from a vendor perspective, and or talk to that vendor about how to perhaps improve some of that remediation time make it easy right yeah <laughs> so that's yeah. the main goal make it as easy as possible to update and yeah. patch your painless as possible yeah painless yeah automation matters i mean there's a ton more of this data that's going to pop in i'm sure into volume eight but rounding out um kind of the the evidence-backed recommendations as we call it in the report so i mean ed you, you ready for it this time uh, I, yes, I decided to read the report. Oh, sweet. Awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> uh, so evidence back recommendations, what takeaway for researchers from this report? Uh, so obviously we've hit this, uh, home for a long time, right? Which is that, uh, coordinated disclosure seems to be working and working very well if available to you in terms of working with your vendors, whether that be on the, the patch side, working with the vendors in terms of the detection side. These are all good things for the defenders overall and good good, good things for, for security overall. So um, you mentioned earlier about Google's Project Zero shifting their their notification by, by 30 days. Um, you know, these are all good things, evidence towards getting better, continue along those paths. But uh, as we've beat to death here, right? Publishing that exploit code when there isn't a patch available, even heck, even oftentimes when there is a patch available, it's not helping us. Yeah. Make things easy. <laughs> Work with the researchers. <laughs> uh, yeah, make things easy. Uh, but I mean, it's they have some notion of how their customers are using their products and just understanding 
how they're going to be remediating is a key important part of that and or making that a key important part of the product. Like we talked about Chrome and how they made it when you restart it, it's going to fix it. You know, putting things into the architecture like that is, is going to be key. So maybe, you know, as you move forward the next few years and you've got new products coming down the line, focus on those and focus on the update process and make sure that these patches are going to be released early, release often, patched often, just constantly updating and make that a part of the product. Don't make it, you know, don't think about how you're going to issue patches after the product is already out there. Yeah. And kudos to Google for doing not only the auto updates with Chrome and things like that, but yes, when I restart my browser, all my existing tabs reopen. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so amazing. And the tab groupings that they just rolled out. Oh, those, those, are, those are wonderful. I know. There's usability was, too, which is, I don't think we're addressing in this report, but right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, I would add one other thing to vendors as well, right? Take, well, one, run a bug bounty program. Like, just do it, right? Allocate budget for that. And when a researcher comes to you with an exploit and or, you know, a new vulnerability, take them seriously, right? Work with them. Um, don't make researchers feel like they need to go publish this thing publicly to to make you take action, right? It, that's really a big key of this. As if the former, if the exploit exists publicly for your software, there's 15x chance that it's going to be exploited, right? 15x the uh, num and 6x the number of organizations are going to get hit by it. If it's an RCE, that's 30x, right? Like take it seriously as a vendor, right? Don't make them publish that. You're making your users less safe. It goes back to make it easy, right? Not only for your users, make it easy to be to work with you, right? From the researcher standpoint, from the customer standpoint, make it easy. I would also caution, Dan, you said just kick up a, a bug bounty program. The, 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 the very complex. Yes. Um, so I would say research <laughs> bug bounty. And if you have the resources and the uh, experience and, and, you know, to tackle that, go ahead. Uh, but I think the main thing is, you know, as you're architecting your product, if you can get those updates out there quick, it makes it a lot easier for you to take researchers seriously because you've got mechanisms to handle these things because bugs are going to happen. You're going to have flaws, you're going to have security problems, and you're going to have bugs that aren't security problems that you have to fix anyway. So, I mean, make this part of the process to be updating this, you know, when it's, when it's out of your control. Come on, Jay, you know me, I'm the comms guy. I make it all sound really easy. Really easy. I don't yeah. actually have to do any of it. Yeah, find so. everything on your network and then patch it. And then yeah, you're done. Yeah, I mean, duh. Why, why don't you just patch everything? Yeah. Only run Chromebooks. It's so easy. Obvious answer. That's all you need, right? Manufacturing. Part of my hope here is that the debate about whether exploits help or not has been in the researcher security sphere, not so much in the vendor sphere. And maybe data from this report will convince some vendors that it's time to work with the researchers to acquire the exploits, not publish them publicly, create disclosure timelines, follow them. So I don't think vendors are as have not been participating in this debate in the same way that security researchers have. Maybe we're going to bring them to the table with some good coverage of this. Yeah. And I think it's worthwhile, too, that a lot of the security researchers are trying to do the right thing. Yes, um, they're they're trying to get a more secure society, more secure internet, more secure companies. And when they're working with a vendor who ignores them, doesn't respond, or you know belittles them, or whatever, ghosts them, even you know, there's going to be different ways that they're going to try and secure the internet and secure secure companies. And so, 
as a company, you just want to work with them. I mean, this is just part of modern life on the in the world, you know. That's a great reminder, though, Jay, because it's it's more than I mean, when you take a look at this data set that and we haven't talked at all about the data set itself uh, for the report. Right. But this is the minority the, in terms of vulnerabilities that have public exploits where the exploits come out before the patch is a very small number of vulnerabilities versus the overall set of CVEs that are out there in the National Vulnerability Database. Right. Yep, that's true. It's what, like under 20% now, I think in the last few years, it's under 20%. So one out of five, a little less than that, have published exploit code uh, readily available. At all. Yeah. Yeah. Period, yeah. And that's a subset, obviously, we're looking at here, right? Yeah. Cool. On the exploitation side, but okay. Well, and then, Michael, you've been a really good voice of the defender, right? So as a defender, what are what are some of the takeaways? I think they are that your SLAs and your responses to exploits really need to be tailored to the vendors. So when I think about our discussion earlier about you know, if it's Microsoft, then within nine days of an exploit being released, the patch is released, they're pretty good. You should know that the baseline for you to get that out and get it remediated is pretty fast, and that's good, and it'll be available. And then if you know that some vendors are bad at it, and you actually, there's nothing you can do for a couple months or weeks, then that can be factored into your prioritization strategy and your SLA strategy. And all of a sudden, having a more granular one frees up a lot of IT ops times, makes the priorities true priorities. Um, this data is invaluable for benchmarking what you should be doing back home. And it's not something that you need to revisit too often, maybe once a year. And if you're, you know, this is something taken account when you're selecting maybe new services, new vendors, things like that, right? Like uh, vote with your wallets, right? Make being secure and making things easy and have automated patching uh, a competitive differentiator for vendors, right? Like go select people that make this easier on you and make you more secure for using it. And uh, to take on to that, like we, we found in multiple research efforts now that automatic updates are really, really key. And so if you're looking at a product, you know, and you're doing a RFP or something, you know, put that in there. Do you, how do you handle your security remediation efforts? Is it, how much effort does it take? Is it something I have to go find and then download and test myself and roll out? Or is this something where I just restart it and it's all taken care of? Yep. You know, so make that, make that part of that decision. Yeah. A little planning goes a long way here. Yeah. Use our report to go buy software, basically. Check it out, look yeah. at some of the vendors. No. And <laughs> if if anyone from SAP is listening, give us a call. Love to chat. Yeah. Yep. Science Institute will help you out terrible. on that. Uh, just don't, <laughs> don't run Drupal out an enterprise. Don't do it. It's not yeah. going to work out. WordPress yeah. is probably not great um, for uh, vulnerabilities-wise, so make sure you can update it pretty frequently. Select your plugins wisely. <laughs> yeah. um, well, with that, I mean, this was a very probably our longest episode. There's a lot of ground to cover, but I thank you for joining us. We're going to keep this research going, uh, but you can actually get some ISC squared credits for listening to this episode here. So if you'd like to do that, go on the Kenna Security blog. You'll see this podcast and there will be a form to put your email address and your ISC number in there and you'll get some uh, continuing education credits. So, uh, Guys, thanks for joining us. Uh, look forward to uh, doing some more research. But uh, yeah, this is another fun one. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. <laughs>